listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. So, so as you can tell, we're, we're going to be looking again at, um, at the Beatitudes, which is what we've been doing this fall. And, and in just a moment, we're, we're going to look at Beatitude number five. There are eight Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, today, we've just kind of been looking at, at them one by one each week. And we're going to be looking at Beatitude number five in just a moment. But I want to give a little bit of a prelude for just a couple minutes here on the front end of the sermon I want to give a prelude. So just before we get to the fifth beatitude, I want to look at this verse, very compelling verse, in the Gospel of John chapter 1. And uh, in verse 18, John, John's, look at what John says here. I mean, this is after, you know, Abraham, Moses, Elijah, all of these incredible people in the history of Israel. And look what John says here in verse 18. No one has ever seen God. But the unique one, who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. <clears throat> one of the reasons I believe why God sent his son into the world, we call it the incarnation, I think one of the, the main reasons, among many, is so that we as a human race, that we would after all know what God is like. That God is like Jesus. And God has always been like Jesus. If we assume that there was ever a time when God wasn't like Jesus, we are mistaken. Because God's character, God's essence never changes. It never evolves. Our understanding of God can and has changed and evolved. But God, God's character has never changed. God is like Jesus. That's one of the themes of the New Testament. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, in, in a variety of ways, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. Paul says in Colossians that Christ is the image of the invisible God. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the exact, not, not approximate, the exact representation of God's very being. So God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. And one of the things I'm trying to show you and teach you in the Beatitudes is that Jesus is like the Beatitudes. Jesus, his whole life, teachings, death, resurrection is encapsulated within the eight Beatitudes. And I think one of the things we're seeing as we work through the Beatitudes together is that the Beatitudes are pretty counterintuitive. By that I mean they're not the way we typically think. They're not the conventional common sense way of estimating circumstances and, and, and approaching life which is why we need our minds renewed all the time. And that's what we've come to do here tonight. That's what we do when we gather, when we get into the scriptures, when we approach God in prayer. Hopefully what's happening is our mind is getting renewed so that we can think like God, so that we can see things through God's perspective, so that we can live like Jesus. 
So with that prelude in place, let's look at our fifth beatitude that we're going to reflect on tonight in Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, and then we're going to pray. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let's pause just before we continue and orient our hearts towards the Lord to hear from God. God, I recognize that you're present in this room. We recognize that you're present in this room. This is a holy moment we've gathered together at the end of our week and at the beginning of a new week. Just like we do, hopefully, on a weekly basis. We're on a journey together. We're hiking the Jesus Trail. And the Beatitudes are our guide. And so, Holy Spirit, we devote ourselves in these next few moments to communing with you as we sit with one another under the teaching of your word. We ask, Lord, for you to speak to the core of our beings. May your word be planted in our hearts. Where we need to be convicted, convict us. Where we need encouragement, encourage us. Whatever we need from you, Lord, we want, we want that. We want that. Speak to us, challenge us. And may your kingdom agenda be established in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I've been reflecting on this beatitude all week. It's just been in my mind. And one of the things I believe wholeheartedly is that this topic of mercy, this, this um, practice of mercy, this virtue, whatever you want to call it, is absolutely central to the Christian experience. What is a Christian? A Christian is, first of all, one who receives mercy from God. We receive forgiveness, right, which restores us into a right relationship with God. But as we continue in that relationship and as we walk with Jesus and as we grow in Jesus, what happens is we become more and more aware of God's mercies that are being poured upon our lives on a moment-by-moment basis. Like literally everything I have is mercy from God. I'm talking spiritually. I'm talking physically. The very... the, the. The heartbeat in my chest right now, every one of them, every breath in my lungs is mercy from God. It's it's God saying, here, have another one. Now have another one. Now have another one. And the more we grow in Jesus, the more aware we, we become, hopefully, that God is just, his mercy is cascading into our lives. And as we become more aware we become more appreciative, and worship doesn't become obligation. It, it's something we can't help but do. It just flows. And what happens is as we become more aware of God's mercies, we're becoming now formed by that mercy. We become formed into merciful people, and we, out of that formation, we go forth as practitioners of mercy. This is what a Christian looks like when God is bringing them along the Jesus way. We become basically not receptacles, we become conduits of mercy. We receive God's mercy, we give it away. It just flows to us and through us. This is what a Christian is. And I'm going to tell you something, it's something the world desperately needs today. Two days ago, I woke up in the morning and 
checked my phone and the, the story I woke up to was this horrific tragedy on a film set of um, this young lady that lost her life. What appears to be a total accident. And um, the actor Alec Baldwin thought he was having, he had a prop gun and somehow or another, I don't know, this, I don't know the full details, but I just know at some point he pulled the trigger of this, what was supposed to be a prop gun and there was a bullet inside and it killed this young lady. Horrible, like terrible. And then this morning I wake up and one of the number one trending topics on Twitter is Alec for prison. And I know that doesn't represent all of humankind. That's just a small segment of people. But I just, you know, things trend because people get behind it. And uh, that's, you know, if you're not on Twitter. And I was just so disgusted, so repulsed. I don't care what you think about his politics. I don't care what you think about his politics at all. I mean, here's a guy who's at, at the lowest point of his life, who's had many lows, but this is the, how do you, how do you come back from this? We live in a merciless world, a cruel world that, that, that's hell-bent on hostility and vengeance and vitriol and ugliness. And in the midst of a world like that, local churches are called to be channels for the healing mercy of God to flow. Because without that, there's no way forward. There's no future for, for the world as it presently exists. So Christians believe in the forgiveness of sins. Yes, we believe in our own forgiveness, but we also believe in God using us as conduits of forgiveness and mercy. And when Christians banish mercy from their lives, when we refuse to have mercy, we abandon the Jesus way. And Jesus is, after all, merciful, isn't he? I mean, you read the Gospels. Jesus is merciful to sinners. He's merciful to tax collectors. He's merciful to prostitutes. Jesus is merciful to Simon Peter, who says, depart from me, Lord. I don't even belong in this place. He's merciful to Levi, the tax collector. He's merciful to Mary Magdalene. He's merciful to the woman caught in the act of adultery. The only people in the Gospels who Jesus was unmerciful to were the unmerciful. See, here's how the game works. And we're going to get into this throughout the Sermon on the Mount because mercy keeps coming up in the sermon. It's so central. But here's how the games work, game works. When you are judged, you are shown mercy it, to the proportion with which you've shown mercy to others. You know, if you, if you give little mercy to other people and you tend to have a very strict law and order mentality, you know, well, we don't, we don't put up with much around here. You know, you need to toe the line. Okay, well, later on, when you inevitably find yourself on the other side of that line, that's going to tend to be the standard that's used against you. That's what Jesus is teaching. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Later on in the sermon, he says, he says, judge not lest ye be judged. We'll get into all of that later. But we tend to experience the same standard that comes back on us. We, we give it we, it, we we receive it. It's the law of sowing and reaping. I was um, discussing this issue of mercy this week with some of our elders. We were having a conversation about just mercy because it was going to be the topic for this weekend. And somebody said this. I thought it was very good. They said, 
we tend to want to judge ourselves based on our intentions. And we tend to judge others based on their actions. You know, here's how it works. When we mess up, when we fail, we want to say, well, you know what I meant well. I, um, my heart was in the right place. I was really trying to help when I called you an idiot. We, we, want to, we want to be judged on the basis of our intentions. When other people fail, our human nature wants to judge them based on their actions. Well, I don't know. I don't know. All I know is what they did. And all I know is actions speak louder than words. And sometimes mercy means, you know what? I'm going to enter into that person's perspective. Let me step into this person's shoes. Maybe they had a bad day. Or if it's something horrific, let's say they've done something horrific. Let's say they've done something criminal. Mercy doesn't mean there's no consequences. No, not at all. Mercy, mercy acknowledges that this was a hurt. This is a wound. This is wrong. And, and even if it's criminal, I mean, th there needs to be some consequences. Th this is appropriate. Mercy doesn't deny any of that. But what mercy says is in the midst of all of that, in the midst of the horrific behaviors, and in the midst of even the, the necessary consequences of those behaviors, in the midst of all of that, I'm still going to affirm the, the basic human dignity that this is a person who's made in the image of God and a person for whom Christ died. Therefore, they have unsurpassable worth. And I'm going to affirm that in the midst of everything else. Because I said, we, we, we live in a cruel world in need of mercy. And where else is this cruel world going to find mercy than from among those who believe and confess the fifth beatitude? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. If they're not going to find mercy here with us, where else are they going to find mercy? The question is, are we a people of mercy? Are Christians generally in America, and I'm, not, I'm going to ask you not to respond verbally to this question because I just want you to ponder it. It's rhetorical. Are Christians in America generally known for being people of mercy? Do we find people saying, man, I've, I've messed up. I've really blown it. I've done something terrible. Let me go find a group of Christians because at least I know they'll have mercy on me. Is that what people say about us in America? What would it take for people to be able to say, you know what, say what you want about those Christians, but they sure are a merciful bunch of people. I mean, if you've blown it, if you've messed up, those are the cats you need to hang around because they're just like Jesus. They're merciful. A couple weeks ago, I, you know, I'm a big NFL fan. I'm a football fan. Go Saints, who dat, all that stuff. And it was pass interference, just to remind you. Um, so I, I follow football pretty closely. And, you know, a couple weeks ago, the big scandal with uh, the head coach of the Las Vegas Raiders, uh, John Gruden, it came out, it was exposed that uh, there were just some emails where he said some pretty inexcusable things. Uh, that's just... It's a fact. It was pretty horrific things that he said. And, um, and he put out a statement, an apology, and, and ended up um, losing his job over it. And, and probably rightfully so. 
And then we saw a week before that, another head coach for the Jacksonville Jaguars, Urban Meyer, um, had a picture, a couple pictures taken of him in a pretty compromising position that, that was really embarrassing to him and his family, and that was exposed. And he had a press conference shortly after that and gave a, a televised apology. And, and so we've seen that happen now within just a two-week span. And it's really a pattern that we see in our culture here in America where you know, it's a public figure or maybe a politician, a celebrity, a sports figure. It just seems like maybe on a weekly basis or a couple weeks or maybe a monthly basis, we see a public figure caught in a scandal of some sort and it's exposed. And very shortly after that, they give some type of public apology, whether it's through a, through a media statement or, or sometimes we even see them in, in press conferences. You know, I can remember years ago when Tiger Woods or, or Michael Vick had their big apologies for their scandals and they, they got on television. And so we see that pattern, the scandal, it gets exposed, and then there's the apology, and then the analysis happens. And the bloggers and the analysts and the experts and the Twitter people feel like it's time now to weigh in on the sincerity of the apology. Well, Fred, do you think that apology was sincere? I don't know. It didn't seem too sincere to me. It seemed like it was pretty low on the sincerity level. As if any of us could ever even know. Like, none of us have the capacity to look within a person's heart. That's something only God can do. So we better leave that up to God. In fact, let me just say this. In the, in the age of social media where everybody feels like they got to weigh in on everything, you don't always have to have an opinion on everything and everybody. Sometimes it's good and healthy to say, you know what, I don't have an opinion on that. It's none of my business. I've seen that phenomenon where, where a public figure is brought down. They've had a horrible scandal, stupid decision. And, in, and instead of giving the person opportunity, I, I, there's a certain segment of our population, and maybe there's a certain part of all of us in our human nature to revel in that person's downfall. Here's a person who's wrecked their family, their, their spouse, their children are devastated. And yet we, we see sometimes this tendency to want to just say, no, 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 you stay down. They're trying to pick their, the pieces, the, pick, pick up the pieces, put their life back together. No, you stay down because it makes me feel superior. It makes me feel stronger and bigger to, to stand on top of you. Thank God I'm not like this person. Or sometimes I hear, I mean, we've all heard, heard the phrase, people will say, well, you know what? They only apologize because they got caught. That's the only reason they apologize is because they got caught. And to that, I just want to say, so? Think about King David. What about King David? David committed adultery and murder, right? Let's, let's just be clear about it. He slept with a man's wife, impregnated her, and then in, in an effort to cover it up, conspires to have her husband murdered. That's what it was. A man who is fighting on the front lines of his army, defending him. And he has the guy killed in an effort to... I mean, this is a scandal of epic proportions. And you know what? David repented, didn't he? But only after he got caught. 
I never hear anybody ever say, well, you know, I don't know about King David. He, he repented, but only after he got caught. I want to suggest that none of us ever actually repents unless the Holy Spirit catches us. That's what we call conviction. You know what the word conviction means? It just means the Holy Spirit has busted you. The Holy Spirit caught you. What if the way that we respond to public figures when they're caught in a scandal, what if the way we speak about them and respond and analyze them, what if that's the way God responded to our prayer of repentance? Well, I hear your prayer. I, I hear your prayer of repentance, but let's face it, you just got caught. Is that the way anybody would want God to respond to our, our honest prayer of repentance? Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Maybe this whole thing is just a test case. Jesus gave a parable that I just find really provocative, really thought-provoking. And he talks about two men who walk into the temple one of those men was a tax collector, scum of the earth, like objectively, horrible human being. Every tax collector, in the, not, I'm not talking about the IRS, I'm talking about Middle Eastern, Roman Empire era tax collectors. Because these are people who have betrayed their own people and they are working for the godless Romans and they're getting rich off of exploiting people. I don't have time to explain how that works, but these are, these are crooks, they're thieves, they are scum of the earth, and there's no religious inclination to these tax collectors in the first century. They, have, they are complete secularists with no commitment to God. The second person who walks into the temple in Jesus' story is a Pharisee, totally opposite end of the spectrum. The Pharisee is a very devout religious man, he is deeply committed to God. He fasts twice a week. He's, he's scrupulous about his tithing. He's memorized scriptures. He prays the prayers. He's morally upstanding and all of that. And, and both of these men come to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee comes to near the, the front. You know, we're not, I want you to sit in the front. Please don't... Um, I'm going to leave that out tomorrow. Um, the, Pharisee, the Pharisee prays this loud, showy prayer. Oh, God, thank you. Thank you that my life is so clean. Thank you that I'm deeply engaged in these religious practices. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like these sinners over here and, and, and these these swine and, and these people who have no commitment to you. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not part of that bunch. And thank you, especially, God, that I'm not like this sinner over here in the back. That's essentially what he prays. And then the tax collector, he's in the back. And he's so ashamed of his life. He's so broken by his sin. He can't even bring himself to stop looking at his feet he can't lift his head. He's pounding his chest in deep shame. And here's the simple prayer that the tax collector prays. He's, it's one sentence. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's all he prays. 
Jesus says, that's the one who goes home justified. 300 years later, a group of Christians that we call the desert mothers and fathers, they take this prayer that the tax collector prays in Jesus' story, and they tweak it and they turn it into a one-sentence prayer that's called the Jesus Prayer. I want to show you on the screen. Here's the Jesus Prayer. It's 1,700 years old. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the desert mothers and fathers take this prayer and they just carry it with them. And periodically they just pray this prayer. For the last five years, I I discovered this prayer about five years ago. And it's one sentence. It's easy to memorize. It's portable. You can take it with you wherever you go. And, and, and I memorize this prayer, and I, it's part of my morning prayer time, but I also sprinkle it in throughout the day, every so often. Sometimes as I'm leaving my office, and maybe I'm headed to this sanctuary and doing whatever, sometimes just on my way as I'm walking through the door, just under my breath, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I'm praying it with thought. It's not rote repetition. It's just a, I'm I'm reflecting on what I'm saying. And I pray that. I, I like to pray that. I think it's important for me to pray that prayer because Ryan Post has a lot that he could boast in before the Lord that would be very inappropriate. Lord, thank you, God, that my life is relatively moral and I'm a pastor and I preach and, and I do all of these things and it's, it's healthy for Ryan Post to be reminded that apart from the mercy of God, I have nothing to stand on. That everything I have in, in my life that's good is just a product of God's mercy. And so I pray this prayer, and I, I carry it with me, and I pray it several times a day just to keep my heart in that posture, just to help me, give me a chance to stay in that posture, recognizing my need for God's mercy. Because the most important, let me think of a better way to say this. The thing that you need more than anything else in your life, it's not even your own breath. What you need more than anything is God's mercy. Somebody might say, well, you know, Ryan, I've lost everything but the mercy of God. If you've lost everything but the mercy of God, you're going to be all right. Because it starts with just recognizing God's mercy to you. And the more you recognize it and are aware of it and you take inventory, maybe you take five minutes at the end of your day and just consider the mercies that God's poured into your life throughout the day, the more you become aware, the more you become formed by that mercy and you become a conduit giving mercy to others. And the only people, I'll say it again, the only people in the Gospels who Jesus was not merciful towards were the unmerciful. So here's my advice to you. If you're going to be a sinner, choose some other sin than being unmerciful. Because that sin's going to be a problem for you. Other sins, every other sin you can find some mercy for. But the sin of being unmerciful is going to be a problem because it blocks the flow of God's mercy upon your life because it comes from a heart of pride. And that's what we'll get into next weekend. But how do we do this? You know, I'm, I'm going to close with this. 
How do, we, how do we become merciful people? One of my big frustrations right now with this series I'm doing, and I'm glad I'm doing the series, but one of my frustrations I'm having, or maybe the frustration I'm having is, is because I'm, I'm spending so much time giving you the vision, giving you the goal, showing you the kind of people God wants to form us in, into being, and yet, simultaneously, I want to teach you how. How do I grow in someone who's becoming poor in spirit? How do I grow in meekness? And because and, I recognize you gotta you gotta give people the what, you gotta also give them the how. But each week, if I tried to tackle both of those, these sermons would be an hour and a half. And I just don't feel like taking an hour and a half for these sermons. Don't say amen. <laughs> And I was talking with Pastor Wade about this because I'm, I'm a big spiritual formation guy. I love giving people some house and, and we're going to get there. I promise you that. In December, I'm hoping to do this, um, start doing these prayer workshops that are such a huge part of what I like to do. And, and we're going to be doing a lot of those types of things. And, you know, your house is going to be different than somebody else's. Everybody's path is going to be a little different, but, but we, can, we can give you a little bit to go off of. Here's, here's some ideas on how to approach prayer, right? Here's some ideas on how to appropriate scripture in your life. We can teach that. And I was talking with Pastor Wade about this. I meet with Wade every Thursday. We continue to do that, just shoot the breeze and talk theology or talk whatever, golf or whatever, whatever's on his heart. And... Um, I was just telling him, I'm like, man, I'm just like having a hard time with this series because I'm wanting, I, I feel like we absolutely need a vision of where God wants to take us. He wants to form us into merciful people. He wants to form us into meek people and so on and so forth. And yet we just don't have a whole lot of time right now to get into the house. And, and you know what he said last Thursday? I was, I was talking about all this. He said, Ryan, you got 30 years, you know? So I was like, hey, there you go. So we'll get into all of that. It's okay. It's a journey. It's a lifelong journey, right? But I do want to take, I want to take just a little bit of time here at the very end and give you a little bit of a how. How do I grow in mercy? This is one of the ways I've found helpful. It may be helpful to you. It may not. But one of the, one of the things that God has used in my life to help form me in the way of mercy, and I have a long way to go, but it's through the method of silent prayer. Let me explain what I mean. It's actually self-explanatory, but let me go a little further. Silent prayer is when I, in the middle of my prayer time, you know, I'm talking, I'm expressing, I'm quoting, I'm, I'm doing different things, but there comes a point where I just stop. And whether it's a minute, whether it's five minutes or 20 minutes, however long, I just stop, I shut my mouth, and I just get quiet. And I'm present to the Lord. I'm not, I don't have any kind of agenda other than just being with him. And there have been times in those moments of silent prayer when I'm recognizing that someone's offended me, someone's hurt me, and I feel compelled to bring that to Jesus, right? So let's say there's a neighbor of mine, and this is purely hypothetical, but let's say there's a neighbor who lives next door or something to me, and they're, they're causing problems. Maybe they're, maybe they're just spreading rumors about me. They're just saying things, spreading things around the neighborhood that aren't true. 
and it's hurtful and it's, it's wounding me and it's frustrating. It would be one thing in prayer for me to just express my rage towards God. You know, like we find in the Psalms with David, where David's like pretty blunt, you know? <laughs> There's moments in the Psalms where David's like, Lord, bust their teeth, you know? And you know what? It's okay to be authentic with God in prayer. Let me say that first. I mean, if you can't bring your rage to God, where else can you bring it, right? God wants us to bring our authentic selves. But it's one thing for me to just do that and just leave it and walk away. It's another thing for me to express that and then sit with God. And I, um, I, I like to do it this way. I'll, I'll sit in my chair in my office. I just brought my stool, so I'm going to bring this around. I'll, I'll place my chair. I'll, I'll sit down. And I'll imagine God, I'll imagine Jesus sitting across from me. And as I'm sitting there silently in prayer, I'm just being present to the Lord. I'm enjoying his love. I'm enjoying his mercy showering upon my life. I'm recalling God's grace upon me. And then I take this situation that's bugging me, this neighbor that's being a knucklehead. And Jesus is sitting right across from me. And I just simply place this right in front. And I just sit there in the midst of God's loving presence. And I shut my mouth. And it may be three minutes or five or ten or whatever, however long it is. I surrender the agenda of the prayer time to God. Because before that, God couldn't get a word in edgewise. But now God has an opportunity to take me now and bring me around and show me a 360-degree perspective of this problem. And an opportunity to maybe put myself in this person's shoes. Not because they're right or I'm wrong or I'm right and they're wrong. It's not about who's right and who's wrong. It's about allowing the loving presence of Jesus to strip away my ego and my toxic thinking. And in the midst of his loving mercy, he's able to take me and show me this from a different perspective. Why? So that I can respond to this person in a merciful, Christ-like posture. This is the method I, I use. It's helping me. It usually doesn't all happen in one sitting. It may be good in one sitting, but it's sometimes it takes multiple sittings. For some of you who have been deeply abused, it may take years. It's okay, it's a journey. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.